Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 164. I'm excited for today's guest because he's not only a brilliant coach who's accomplished some really cool stuff, especially recently with a national championship, but he's also a really important mentor, um, someone that helped me a lot early in my career and really helped to shape my direction while I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut. I was kind of deciding between going the research route um, versus actually going into coaching and, and watching him do his thing in the weight room was something that was really important impactful for me and help me lead down, help lead me down the path that I'm on. So I'm excited to, to have him today. Um, he's got some great insights on not just how to work with athletes, how to evaluate athletes, but also really to build relationships with them that will set the stage for long-term success. So I think you're really going to like this one. Overuse injuries have emerged as one of the biggest threats to players at every level of competition. As an example, at the professional level, ulnar collateral ligament injuries at the elbow alone sideline pitchers for an average of over 17 months. That's a ton of lost development and a threat to lengthy careers. Just as concerningly, though, for youth players, overuse is the predominant mechanism of injury. So what can be done? Obviously, we need to train athletes to be prepared for all the stresses the game throws at them. However, the other side of the equation, recovery, often doesn't get the attention it deserves. Healthy, recovered arms mean you can stay in the game and give your best on the field, and that's where Mark Pro comes in. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge recovery tool that provides all the benefits of active recovery, but without the extra effort, muscular fatigue, or stress to tendons and joints. Players can use Mark Pro as long as needed for exceptional recovery between training sessions or after games. We'll often send Mark Pro units back with athletes to their hotels or even have them use them on team flights. Both easy to use and portable, Mark Pro is a powerful tool that allows recovery anywhere, anytime. Use it while relaxing at home, on the road, or during tournaments. On a personal note, I was originally a naysayer when it came to Mark Pro. However, longtime Cressy Sports performance athlete Corey Kluber turned me on to it. He adopted Mark Pro into his post-pitching recovery approach, and it was an integral part of him going out and throwing 200 innings year after year. This led me to experiment with it myself and with more of our athletes, and the feedback was consistently outstanding. Now, just a few years later, you'll see it in every major league organization as part of the routines of some of the most accomplished baseball players on the planet. If you're looking for the same results enjoyed by these athletes, visit markpro.com and use the coupon code CRESSY at checkout for an exclusive discount. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive discount. Today's guest graduated with a bachelor's degree in kinesiology in 2002 and a master's degree in sports management in 2014, both from the University of Connecticut. While at UConn, he served as a graduate assistant strength and conditioning coach. He then accepted a role of assistant strength and conditioning coach at the College of the Holy Cross in 2004. In 2008, he joined Quinnipiac University as the athletic department's head of strength and conditioning. He has since been promoted to associate athletic director and director of athletic performance. He primarily works with the men's and women's basketball and ice hockey teams at Quinnipiac, but also oversees the strength conditioning development for all 21 varsity sports. This year, the Quinnipiac men's hockey team won the national championship. In addition to training student athletes at Quinnipiac, he has written and lectured extensively. He's a level one and two certified through reflexive performance reset and is a level one nutrition coach through precision nutrition. He also holds certifications from the NSCA and USA weightlifting. Please welcome to the show, Brijesh Patel. Brijesh, it is incredibly overdue. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. I know it's, uh, it's been way too long, man. I mean, I can't remember the last time we've kind of touched touch base. Like, I, I think the last time I saw you was passing through an airport. I don't know if you remember that. 
last I time. I do remember that. I, yeah, I don't know <laughs> where Chicago. it was going or where you were going. Yeah, yeah, we were like crossing yeah. paths. I'm like, oh, no way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's been, you know, what's so cool is just hearing, you know, you hearing you on Tim recently on the Ferris podcast and then just you know, seeing the arc of your career and seeing the arc of my career and how everything kind of started together and then just seeing each other from afar, but like a massive respect for everything that you've done and everything you've been, you continue to do to push the industry forward. So I, I appreciate any kind of time I can be able to spend with you today. I appreciate it, man. You know, I think there was a, I think UConn was a little bit of a Petri dish for, uh, for strength and conditioning talent back in the early 2000s. We had a lot of really good influences there and it, it helped us along. So I, I appreciate you saying that, but let's be real. This is about you, right? Like you're a national <sighs> champion. So congratulations. Um, the logical you. next step is after, after you visit the white house, you come on Eric Cressy's podcast, right? It was, I mean, it was, it was on my, it was on my bucket list, right? Go to the white house and then talk to Eric Cressy the next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, very cool, man. Congratulations. And I know we'll, we'll dig you. in a lot of that, but um, very, very um, fascinated to hear, you know, having, you know, seen you kind of like take over at Quinnipiac and do some really cool things there over the years. And, and obviously, you know, get to the pinnacle of it with the national championships is awesome. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in looking to other sports to see how we can improve on our own sports. And I know you've got some experience in the baseball realm yourself. In fact, that's the, the first thing I ever watched you coach was the UConn yeah. men's baseball team back in 2003. I think it was, um, yeah. I know hockey and basketball have definitely been your wheelhouse more of late. I think you, you have both men's and women's hockey and men's and women's basketball at, at Quinnipiac, correct? Yeah. Yep. So, yep. So, my winters are uh, my winters are taken up between those four sports. <laughs> right on. Um, but you also, you know, have your hand in. I think they've got 21 varsity sports at Quinnipiac. I'm sure from a staffing standpoint, budgets, all that stuff. I'm, I'm curious. You know, it was a long time that you were in the industry before it was just basketball and hockey. Did you see advantages to being a generals for so long before you really specialized this heavily? I did, and I recommend this to any young coach or any intern. Um, anybody that's wanting to get in the strength conditioning field, it, I think it's really important to be able to work with a variety of different athletes um, in a variety of different populations before you ever decide that you want to be working a niche sport. I think t- too many too many young coaches today like want to specialize early, and I, don't, I think it's pretty similar to to athletes specializing. Like you know, we know that early sports specialization isn't isn't a really good thing for long-term physical health or, or mental health, mental health. I think it's the same with, uh, becoming a coach. Like, I think if you can learn how to coach a variety of different athletes, um, across a variety of variety, different sports, men and women, um, I think it's going to expose you and it's going to help you as an individual and as a coach to understand how a variety of different people, a variety of different people like move, not only move, but also just think because so much of coaching is being able to build a relationship and to build, be able to connect with an individual on different, different levels. And when you decide to specialize with, in my case, in hockey or basketball, like not everybody's wired the same, not everybody's motivations are the same. Not everybody, you know, ticks the same way. Like everybody's got different levels of inspiration, desire. And for, as a coach, you've got to be able to understand how to, like I often say this is to get in somebody's soul or, to really connect with somebody on a human individual to get them to do what you ultimately want them to do. And if you've only worked with one sport for all of your experiences, all your internships growing up and developing as a coach, you're going to be limited in the amount of connections that you're going to be able to develop 
when you get into a sticky situation or you're going to deal be presented with a difficult case. And so being a generalist has has massively helped me. Like I know I started at the University of Connecticut and I was able to work with nearly every single sport on an intern capacity. And those experiences helped me tremendously because you know, I learned about sports I've never you know, experience before. Um, I didn't have to compete in them, but you know, I, it just exposed to different coaches, different coaching styles, different athletes, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic standards. Like all of those things go into truly understanding how an athlete is wired and really peeling back layers. How, like they're not, they're a human being at the end of the day. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to go to the, the college of Holy cross afterwards. And I worked with 14 sports. Like in this day and age, that's unheard of to be, you know, to have a full-time job and work with that many sports. But, you know, between Jeff Oliver and I, we made it work. Um, did everybody get the most specialized program that they that they could get? No. And, and you know, looking back at it, they didn't need it. You know what I mean? They didn't need it because uh, they, they were just general athletes. They were not elite athletes by any means. So, um, but being able to work with that amount of sports and understanding different coaching styles really allowed me to own in on my style as a coach, but also my programming style, what works, what didn't work. And I think it prepared me tremendously to be able to, to you know, to work with, you know, for just two sports now, men and women, obviously, but, um, I, I could not recommend to young coaches more, more to, uh, to try to work with as many athletes as possible. It's, um, I think it helped you too. Like when you were at UConn, you like, you obviously you worked with basketball, soccer, um, exposed to baseball, exposed to so many different sports there. Like, and it helps you understand athletes at such a high level where you can, you can make, you can get to see what's, what makes somebody tick a little bit more effectively. I think it, it develops bandwidth too, right? You know, like it's, it's, it's obviously like from a, you know, experiencing a collection of different, you know, athletic, you know, movement patterns and assessment results and all these different things. But, you know, certainly you mentioned like dealing with a number of different people. It's, it's also a time of day, right? You know, cause you're going to have a athlete that might be in season and it, or seriously a team that might be in season and another team that might be out of season. The in-season team might be practicing or, you know, training at 5 p.m. after practice ends. And some of the other ones might be coming at 6 a.m. before practice or before school starts for the day. So you you have to learn how to manage your time, um, you know, very, very different when you collectively are, are dealing with a lot of different people. And, and obviously time of year constraints, whether they're in-season, off-season, there's there's a lot of different things that go with it. So, um, you know, the big one thing I, I think, too, in specialization is is – you kind of earn it over the course of a career. Like it's, it's, it's almost yeah. like a level of autonomy that takes place. And the problem, you know, with anybody in early in their careers is someone that takes a ton of autonomy. You know, they think that they're ready for it. And there's yeah. actually a lot of, you know, what's the saying structure sets you free. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of people need that structure early in their career so that they have a good developmental path. And if you're the specialist at 22, it's, it's generally not going to be well for the long-term development path. No, I don't know. You know, I, and it's it's tough nowadays too because I think when we were starting out in the field, you know, especially in, in college settings and even from like a private development stamp, like a private training facility, there, there weren't a lot of them, right? There weren't a lot of private training facilities back in the early to mid two thousands. They started to trend a little bit later, but also in college athletics, each university might have had anywhere from two to four positions. Now. Like some, yeah. some schools have like upwards of five to 10. I can tell you like Quinnipiac, when I started we had 21 sports and it was just me, 
you know, and obviously I was, I was hired primarily to work with men's women's basketball, men's women's ice hockey. But, um, you know, I, I had interns at the time and I oversaw every single one of our other sports and I, you know, communicated with all the coaches and all those types of things. And now I've been here for 15 years. I've got a staff of four, I have three full-time assistants. Um, we have interns, like it's, it's allowed some of our assistants to have, instead of having eight to 10 sports, they're down to four. Right. And so that allows them to, um, you know, deliver a little bit more specialization, a little bit more attention to each and every single student athlete that they train. But I think back in the day, you know, it wasn't so long ago, like close to 20 years, but back in the day you had more athletes that you were responsible for. So you were able to be exposed to so many different movement patterns, so many different athletes, so many different types of people that, Young coaches nowadays, if they get a college job or they get these get into these private training facilities, they might be only exposed to like two or three different sports. So they're not yeah. getting the same amount of um, experience, I think, that we were fortunate to be able to get at such a early stage mm-hmm. in our careers. No, no doubt about it. You know, I you, you hinted at something that was kind of my next question. So thank you for paving the way. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about like what's upstream, right? Like you know, I even talked about it on the podcast with, with Tim Ferriss. It's like, you know, hey, improving sleep quality tends to improve all the other outcomes, right? Better nutrition improves all the other outcomes. I think culture is an interesting one. I know we've talked about it a little bit. We've texted about it over the years and you've put a ton of effort into, you know, not just the X's and O's of coaching, but also the importance of establishing the right culture. Obviously, you were a culture of of one in strength conditioning at, at Quinnipiac yeah. when you started. Now it's grown. And I'm, I'm sure there are key, uh, I don't know if competency is the right word, key values that you've really emphasized to your staff there. And, and then obviously in turn your athletes. So, you know, big picture, I know it's a buzzword, but how do you define cultures and, and, and what are the C, some of the key competencies that you really try to, to hammer home, you know, across all sports where you are now? Yeah, I think um, I'm often known as the, as the culture guy when it comes to strength conditioning. And it's something that I kind of pride myself in as a, as a coach, like it's um, it's, Obviously, the quantitative side of strength conditioning is really important, but I think the qualitative side of things often gets often lo- overlooked. And that's one of the things that I, that I kind of pride myself in and pride our staff in is that we have to make sure that we create the optimal environment for our athletes to be successful, right? And so what we do with, with strength conditioning in our university, it's we're part of the student-athlete experience. And we need to be able to make sure that we create the best experience for that student-athlete that we can. And the way we do that is with our culture and with our environment. And so in my opinion, culture is a set of shared values and beliefs and our belief system makes everything else tick. Like you could write the best program in the world, but if it's done with um, poor effort and poor environment and in the team, the teamwork isn't very, isn't at a high level, it, you're not going to get the best results. And so what we want to do is we make sure that each and every single one of our staff members and our, and our student athletes understand our non-negotiables. The thing will not be tolerated on a daily basis. And that's number one, accountability. Right. We want to make sure that all of our student athletes understand how to hold themselves to the highest standard possible. They're not going to make excuses for themselves. Um, they're not going to play the blame game. They're going to make sure that they hold themselves accountable, but they're also going to be held accountable to their teammates too. So that's number one. That's first and foremost is you've got to have a high level of integrity and, and accountability with every action that you decide to take within, within a trading environment. Second big thing is respect. And, and when we talk about respect, we want to be able to respect the facilities that we are, that we are fortunate enough to be able to train in, respect our coaches that are trying to help us, respecting their teammates who are trying to help them, um, respect ourselves. And we talk about respecting our bodies with sleep, with hydration, making sure that we can um, take care of ourselves so we can, we can perform at our best. 
And the last big thing is work ethic. Like we want to make sure that we have the strong, a strong work ethic because good things often happen to people who, who work hard. So our culture is set through our non-negotiables, right? So accountability, respect, work ethic is, is, is key towards everything. Um, this is something I usually share with our student athletes. It's, it's whatever you tolerate becomes acceptable, right? And so we want to make sure that we, we have high, high standards, high demands with every single thing that we do. Um, and it's not done in a militant setting. I think that's the, the personalization side of things that we do is everything that we do and everything that we tell our student athletes is, it's, it's, listen, we're doing these things and we're saying these things because we're trying to help you become the best version of yourself. There's some days yeah. we, we might need a kick in the butt. Some days you're going to need a hug. Some days you're going to, um, we're, we're going to be hard on you because we recognize that each and every single one of us can grow, can improve and can get better. And, um, you know, it's, it's set with our non-negotiables and we try to create an environment that is, it's structured, it's organized and it's efficient as well as being positive, safe and disciplined. Right. So those are key ways that we create our environment. Right. And, um, if, I don't know if you've ever read James Clear or Atomic Habits, but he's yeah, got a great thing absolutely. on environment, right? Like it, environment is the invisible hand that shapes human behavior, right? And so the human behavior that we want to try to create is one of um, elite performance, right? We want to be able to perform at a high level. We want to be able to maximize our genetic ceiling as much as we can. We want to be able to become the best individual, but also the best team at the same time. And the only way that's going to happen is through, if the environment is created where um, you know, cha- our, our best is the only thing that we want, right? Like, so it's, it's, we always talk about getting better, right? So when everybody leaves our weight room, there's a sign above the door that says, I just got better. And so when we walk in, we want to make sure that we have an energy that's directed towards actually improving, right? If somebody comes in, like you've experienced this probably at all levels, right? If somebody's yeah. rolls in and they're, they're tired and they're sleepy or they're, they're making excuses or complaining about something already, like the chance that they're going to improve is going to be really slim. So we tell our athletes. And they're going to bring others down around them, right? Exactly. It right, becomes, it yeah. becomes contagious, like, right. So positive yeah. energy is contagious and negative energy is contagious too. So we have a, a saying on the outside of our door. When you walk in, it says, be responsible for the energy you bring into the space. Right. And so what we mm-hmm. want to do is make sure don't bring any negative vibes in here. If you do just go check yourself because we want to make sure that you're going to get better, that you have the attitude that you're going to get better, but also you're going to help your teammates get better too. And that kind of stems back to being accountable, right? And so if you, you know, decided to stay up late playing video games or watching Netflix or watching whatever you did, like own up that you are in charge of you, you feeling fatigued and understand that that Mm -hmm. is going to directly impact your training session today. And that directly is going to impact your performance on the ice or the court today. So don't make any excuses for it like own up to it. And if you don't like the way you feel right now, then maybe we need to figure out your sleep schedule. Maybe we need to figure out your nighttime routine. Maybe you need to figure out your nutrition plan. You know, like all these types of things are just part of the process of education. And I think that's um, kind of goes into our overall philosophy that our staff really recognize and understand is our philosophy is based around the goals. Number one, reduce chance of injury. Second, make better athletes and three, educate. And how each individual coach on our staff decides to, you know, prescribe, uh, training programs for their for their assigned sports is up to them. So there's a lot of creativity involved. There's a lot of artistry that they, that they can undergo. But yeah. uh, it's 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 all about number one, reduce chance of injury. Second thing, make them better athletes. And three, educate. So education is a big piece of the puzzle, but it's all stemmed around our, our non negotiables. Does that kind of help with like understand like culture, right? Because culture is so yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a moving, it's a moving people, target. 
Yeah. People talk yeah. about it all the time and it's culture isn't something that you do just, all right, here's, uh, this is, I think annoys me more than anything. They're like, they're like, Oh, we're going to do a mental toughness day. Like just like, yeah. or we're going to work on our culture today. Like how are you going to work your culture today? Like culture is something that's, yeah. that you do each and every single day and you have to fight for your culture, right? As a coach, as a yeah. leader, you have to set the tone for what's going to be acceptable and what's not going to be acceptable, but you've got to fight for it every single day. And mm-hmm. doing this long enough is, as long as I have, I've recognized and realized that when your athletes or your team members are fighting for your culture, that's when you got a chance to be really, really good. But if you're, if you're a coach led team or a coach led organization, you're going to be limited, right? So we want to be able to become a player led team as much as we can. So the players are the ones fighting for the culture and they're the ones who are holding each other to the standard um, of showing up on time, of, of making sure we're communicating, making sure we're cleaning up, cleaning up after ourselves, making sure we're doing the right mm-hmm. tempos, all those types of things. Those are, that's when the magic happens, right? Like, and we were fortunate to be able to have a lot of success this year. Um, but it's all because we were player led. Like we, they completely mm-hmm. drove the culture and they completely drove, drove the ship in the right direction. That's a, a, a great lead into, you know, as you're discussing this, I, you know, you always ask like, what, what happens when something goes wrong, right? So you, you know, reducing the risk of injuries, priority number one, right? Like we know that just warming up in and of itself d- does that, right? The FIFA 11 is probably the most mundane collection of dynamic warmups and it made a dramatic difference in, you know, ACL injury risk and hamstrings injury risk in soccer players, right? So doing basic boring stuff every single day works, right? So what, what happens when one of your basketball you know, girls comes in and wants to skip a warm up, or what happens when your, your men's hockey team <laughs> leaves a mess in a locker room? I, I really mean that in the sense that it, it is the goal to have a player led culture where you don't have to say anything and you go and you nudge one of your captains, one of your veterans, and they handle it. Um, is it is it shared responsibilities? Like what what what's your what do you endeavor to get to, and what are you okay with? Well, I'm not okay with them cleaning up after. Uh, not cleaning up, cleaning up after yeah. themselves. I'm not okay with. Uh, yeah. Um, somebody skipping a, a, a part of the process, a, a part of the training session. Um, and it happens And oftentimes, like if they're the only person in there, like, for example, like we, there was two women's ice hockey players who came in today and, um, they skipped a portion of the prep period because they were running late, right. They were running late because, um, couldn't get in the locker room and have the key, right. Or, or the dinner didn't open up the locker room for them. So they're running late. So they want to make sure that they got in time. So and I told them, I'm like, I'm like, you, you, you skip prep. I'm like, they're, they're like, well, we're just trying to catch up on time. I'm like, that's all right. I'll wait for you. There's nobody behind you. We don't, we don't need, we don't have somebody else in here. So make sure you get it done. So, and then they did. And, um, when we start to have a full team come in, I, I want the upperclassmen and what I call upperclassmen, anybody who's been here for more than a year. Um, it's not just juniors and seniors. It's, it's sophomores too. When a new athlete comes on campus, um, I usually often take them through, a, you know, an orientation where we go over policies, procedures, all those types of things. But the other thing is when we start to train, I often ask one of our upperclassmen, I'm like, all right, teach them how to read a sheet, teach them what to do, mm-hmm. take them through this. So now it develops communication, like the skill of communication with that, with that upperclassman athlete. So they, they're giving some sort of ownership into what they're doing. So I think to answer the question is when the athletes understand that they are completely in control of their progress and of their future and of their success. That's when I think 
the magic that happens. That's when I think they own the culture. Um, I often tell our athletes, when we train, it's not my training session. When you play, it's not my game. When you practice, it's not my practice. It's not the coach's practice. When you enter campus and you're going to be here for four to five years, it's, it's your career. It's not my career. So the quicker you start to realize that you are fully in control of everything that is that you want, you want to go play pro. All right. I'll teach you how to become a pro. You, you want to, you want to have, you want to be an all American. I'll try to teach you how to be an all American. Um, and just holding them to that standard of, of, of them recognizing the words that they say and the things that they want and you hold them accountable to that standard. But really it comes down to them owning everything that is that they, that they want. So if they want to be able to train in a, in a, in a clean facility, then they need to clean up after themselves. Mm -hmm. If they want to be able to be respected, then they need to make sure that they show up on time and they respect other people's time. So it's, it's not something that happens once today. It's not just happens. It's something that happens in a week or one off season. It's, it's, it's something that's been ongoing for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I, I, I can tell you, like I got here in 2008 and it was hard, right? It was challenging for a lot of the athletes that have been here to then that operated without somebody holding them to a standard and, and somebody that, that did that, there was no strength conditioning coach to me being very demanding and me being very structured and organized with everything that is we want and get them to understand, Hey, you need to show up on time. If you don't show up on time, you got to text me. You got to let me know that you're going to be, that you're going to be running late. And a lot of people fought it at first and they didn't like it. Um, but they started to experience changes within their life that where they, they started to become a little bit more disciplined in other aspects of their life where they started to recognize that, shoot, these things actually bleed into other aspects of my life that where I need to do it. And then they, that's when that's really started to change is when kids started to buy in and then incoming athletes would start to realize that this is how we do things. And there is no, there's no other way around it. Like this is the way that we're going to do things. We're going to do things to an extremely high standard. We're going to all look the same. We're going to wear the same stuff. We're going to count when we do abdominal training. We're going to clap. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk. We're going to, we're going to help clean up after each other. We're going to, we're going to help each other set up weights. This this is, this is what we do. We're going to finish with the line. We're going to start behind the line. We're not going to wear hats in the gym. We're not going to bring our phones in the gym. Like all these little things uh, have created the culture over the course of or course of time. And if I, if there's any young coaches that listen to this, even veteran coaches who might recognize this, um, if there's something that you value, you've got to work towards it each and every single day. And I think that little lesson in itself can be applied to any aspect of somebody's life, right? If you want to change your body composition, then you've got to value your nutrition. And you've got, you've got to value the things that you put in your body. If you want to um, f- feel better, um, then you've got to dial in your sleep, right? If you got to, you've got, maybe you got to train a little bit more. If you want to value a relationship that you have, then you've got to work at that relationship. And it's really no different than if you want your, if you don't like the training environment that you have, then you got to change it. You got to figure out how mm-hmm. to change it. But it requires some self awareness too. And I know I'm going in a bunch of different directions right here, but it, it's, no, I, think it's on I point. just want to, yeah, I just want you to, you, everybody listening to this to truly understand that, that cultures, it's a challenge to be able to get to, right. And mm-hmm. you see teams win at lots of different levels and you see, um, and the Nuggets just won the championship. The Vegas Knights just won the championship. Like it's, if you 
if that's what you want your teams to be able to get to, and if you want your your environment, your training environment to be high level and elite and, and where champions are made, then it's something you got to work towards each and every single day. There's no, you can't cut corners, right? It's, it's something that you got to fight for, but when your athletes run it, then it's, then it's powerful. Then it's fun. That's huge. Um, let's, let's talk about athletes. Um, in, in particular, you know, kind of this idea of like a college athlete lifespan. Um, this is something that I, I think I've honed in on really, really deeply over the last couple of years, um, particularly, you know, kind of in light of some of the Proteus findings that we've had with power testing and just how guys change. Um, you know, I think what what often happens is college athletes are heavily differentiated from high school athletes from a strength and power standpoint. And what's really interesting, though, is that professional athletes and college athletes aren't a ton different when it, when it comes to some of these measures. Um, so clearly, you know, it's skill development. It's being really, really good at certain things. That, that make people professionals. That's the next level. I'm sure you guys have hockey players that have, you know, ridiculous VO2 max or, you know, whatever it may be that just don't quite have enough to, to become NHL players, but they're, you know, they're, they're solid college players. So there's, there's a differentiator, but I think one of the things that we're seeing is a lot of athletes who thrive really in their freshman and sophomore years, kind of, they, they get the the newbie gains out of the way mm-hmm. and then they tend to stagnate in those last two years of college. And you're a guy that doesn't like to leave any stone unturned. I'm curious. One, have you seen this in, in athletes? Whether it's because they've they've become you know kind of closer to a physiological ceiling, or just because they don't realize that what works initially is going to work forever. Um, and you know, what are some of the athletes that you like to throw out there with your your more experienced athletes? Once there isn't really low hanging fruit, you know, available to be picked. That's a great question. It is something that I've recognized. Um, you know, it was interesting. Like when. When I worked at the College of the Holy Cross, and my wife um, was a basketball coach there, she played played there, and she was a coach there, and we had this conversation about um, how she recognized that a lot of players were really good their freshman year, and they just kind of stayed at the same level, and it's kind of the same thing that you just said, and we always talked about we wondered why, and. I think over the course of my time, as I've developed, as I learned, I think what starts to happen is that either there's a lack of self-awareness to understand opportunities of growth or the program or practice or the skill development isn't individualized to what they actually need. Because in college, it often happens like it's, it's really challenging to become individualized within a group setting, right? Because they're in the, mm-hmm. with the NCAA rules the way they are, you have limitations on time at which you can train and you can practice and all these types of things. And oftentimes when a coach designs a practice or even a strength coach designs a a training session, everybody's doing the same thing, right? Because you're trying to become a better team. And what often happens is if an individual needs to improve in a certain standpoint, if they've maxed out their strength, say their relative strength, if they've maxed out, their skill development in one area, but they need to grow in another area, then they need to be able to find that time where they can individualize and get personal attention mm-hmm. towards whatever it is that they need to improve. So I think that's something that I personally have gotten better at over the course of time. But what we have at Quinnipiac and the way we kind of develop things is is we have a really strong developmental model where we truly understand that, and it's a philosophy top down from our coaches to myself is we want you at your best by the time when you play your last game. So that's your senior year. So that's something that's across the board from top down. It's 
And I think that makes it easy. Like we often don't run into issues where kids peak when they're freshmen and sophomore. Like our every single one of our athletes honestly gets better at the sport that they're in. Physically, we might have to change some things. Like their maybe their vertical jump stagnates at a certain level, yeah. right? But their performance on the court is is better. They can move better. They're healthier. I, that's a win for me. So what we've been able to do is individualize within a group setting and it requires some creativity and how you're going to be able to do that things. But we often have different metrics where if somebody hits a, a relative strength marker, then now we can shift their emphasis towards speed and power, right? So instead of say maybe doing two strength emphasis for two strength, two lower body strength emphasis for a week, maybe we do one that's a little bit more heavier or heavier with a loaded emphasis. And the other day is going to be a little bit more speed and power oriented. So we can shift um, based on whatever it is they need, but we can do it in a structured environment where it, it's, it still fits in the grand scheme of how we're going to be able to train within our hour block or hour and 15 block where um, we can still make things seamless. And that happens over the course of time too. It's, it's one of those things where, when your athletes know how to train and they can train at a high level, you can tweak something for an individual here and there, and it's not going to interrupt the flow of an entire training session where sometimes I think that might, it's, it becomes challenging. Like how do I, you know, there's times we have like four or five different training programs going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And for some, it's difficult for some coaches. It might be difficult to manage, but for me, the athletes manage it themselves because we've Mm -hmm. created the environment we were talking about before where they own it. And all I have to do is I got to teach them the exercise and then they can do it on their own. And then we just try to go around and make sure that they're doing it correctly, that they have the right uh, cues, whatever it is that they need. But um, being able to understand how to individualize based on somebody's needs and assessment comes into play, um, being able to create open blocks of time where somebody might need to be able to get in for an extra 15 minute session here and there where they can work on their weaknesses. Like I can tell you, for example, like from a skill development standpoint, um, our, our coaches do an unbelievable job at using pre-practice time or after practice time to work on those individual needs where the, where the mm-hmm. athletes continuously can try to improve and get a little bit better. So we're fortunate that we don't often have those, those situations where athletes peak early on, but I know exactly what you mean. Cause I've seen it. Yeah. Like we can, you can watch, you can watch college sports. You can watch, um, high school sports. We see it in, in, in youth sports, watching our kids too. Kids might be great at, 10, 11, 12 years old, but then, then they don't develop any further. And then you got to start to ask yourself, why is it that they're not developing? Do they, maybe they need to spend more time training. Maybe they need to spend more time in their, in their Mm -hmm. nutrition. Maybe they need to spend more time in their sleep habits. Maybe they need to change. Maybe they need to introduce sports psychology. Maybe they are there. They need to work on their mental game. Maybe they need to become a better student of the game um, and watch more video. Right. And so every situation tends to be a little bit different, but I think, the concept of, of getting better really helps. Right. And so, like I said before, like that's our mantra, we call it our company motto, like constantly get better. We've got to teach our athletes how to find ways to get better, you know, and when they start to own their processes of development and they can start to ask the right questions of how to become a 24 hour athlete about how to become a little bit more aware of their, their athletic development, how to become a little bit more aware of their, their mental habits, how they're, how they handle adversity, how do they handle disappointment? How do they handle success? All these types of things really go into the developmental developmental model where they can continued, continue to experience growth rather than just hitting obstacles. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you you even hinted at the idea of like sometimes it's uh, it's it's understanding when to do something different, right? So someone you know plateaus from a strengthening standpoint, and you, the the window of adaptation is closed. Sometimes the best thing to do is go go and focus on something completely different, even if that measure is on the court or on the ice. You know, re- recovery capacity is limited. You've got to figure out where you want to use it. Um, I, I respect the heck out of the fact that, you know, I, I think in college weight rooms, it's a, it's a rarity to have four or five different programs going, but, but I don't think people realize how easy it can be done. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, and it, it really is. Like it works it's something working on the, on the front end. Yes. You know, you and when you, them. and when you can, yeah, exactly. Like it's when, when you create your environment, right. And you decide like, how do I want my gym to run? I knew flat out, like, I, I'm not going to handhold you. Like, I do not want to hold your hand going through this entire training session because what, what are you going to do when you're, when, when I'm not there? And we talk about that in the off season, like the sports I work with, yeah. you're like you're often at home in the summertime when you're, and you're not on campus, like primarily with basketball and hockey at the longest train, they have the longest seasons. You're primarily going to be in season when you're at school. And when you're away from school, that's your off season. So I need to be able to teach you how to train by yourself. And when you know how to train, you know how to warm up properly. You know how to prep yourself properly. You know how to have intent with every exercise and every single movement. You know how to, you know, the right tempos, the right techniques, and you know how to train on your own. Then it becomes easier to individualize, right? But if you, if, if an athlete is so dependent upon the coach, they're going to struggle. It's like a, like no different, right? You're a parent, right? Like, so if your child is so dependent on you, like, what are they going to do when, when they have to go to go off on their own? What are they going to do when they're, yeah. when they go off to college? Like, and they don't know how to do laundry. They don't know how to balance it. Well, nobody, I don't know if anybody balances a checkbook anymore, <laughs> but like, what are they going to do when they got to, got to handle a budget or they got to go grocery shopping and they, yeah. they're going to cook. Yeah. Like if they don't have these basic skills, like how will they be able to function? And remember my grandfather used to say, uh, he wrote me a letter, like, because he used to always write letters. He wrote me a letter and, uh, in it was like, you know, how is training your children going, you know, and, and nobody ever really thinks about like, you know, yeah. parenting is training, but essentially it is, you're trying to train them for, to mm-hmm. be adults. Eventually you're trying to train them to be independent. And I don't, you know, athletic development, I don't think is any different, right? Like coaching is mm-hmm. it's training. You're trying to teach and empower the people that you work with to understand how to do things independently. And the coach is yeah. there strictly to help guide them along the path so that they can, they, they don't fall. The guardrails. Yeah. They don't veer yeah. away from where, from, from the end goal or for, for whatever it is that they want to accomplish. And so empowerment and teaching is really important. So when you're able to do that and you create the environment where that's, it's allowed and it's, it's expected, then it becomes easier to individualize. And, you know, we, we, we individualize almost all year round. Like it could be just a simple exercise. If somebody, you know, has a hip pathology, then they don't front squat and they trap our deadlift like that. That could be an individualization and a key. If somebody's going to have a APRE based program for a particular movement, or somebody's going to be a velocity based training, like that's individualized in itself. Mm-hmm. If somebody's going to do a injury modified modified exercise, that becomes individualized. So there's so many different ways, or so you're going to choose to load somebody with a different implement versus somebody else. Yeah. That that's how you can individualize, and it really is 
something doesn't have to be on a completely different program, but you just got to have some minor tweaks here and there based on what it is that that individual and that athlete needs. It's some, uh, mm-hmm. An exercise progression could be different for a veteran versus a developmental mm-hmm. athlete from a new, new person that comes in. And um, being able to recognize maybe having – just being organized with the regression, progression kind of scheme and plan of how you might take an athlete and take a movement through many different um, parts of a speed strength continuum – um, it allows things to become a little bit easier to navigate when and is when and if you need to be able to you know implement a said um, a said variable with with a particular athlete. Absolutely, um, you know, I'm I'm actually fascinated to hear your response to this next one because uh, hockey is unique in the sense that you have you have a ton of different en- energy system demands, but the physicality of it doesn't just allow you to sell out for you know, basically conditioning exclusively. Like you've got to be strong. You've also got to be powerful, all this stuff. I know baseball has changed dramatically over the past, you know, 20 years. Just players are bigger and stronger than ever. The game is played at insane speeds. I mean, the last 20 years, we've seen an average fastball velocity increase about four miles per hour. So there's certainly injury trends that that have changed along those ways. How has hockey changed over the course of your career? And and you and I are both, you know, early to mid forties. So we're, we're coming up on having two decades in the game. What's, what's been your experience? It's, uh, athletes now, hockey athletes particular are more specialized. Like they've, they've decided to specialize in hockey for a long period of time. And with that, they're often more trained. Like they've all done some sort of off ice training. Um, they're faster. Um, I think the game itself has changed as well too. I think the game has shifted away from big guys and, and bigger, um, in size and they've kind of shifted towards speed. And it's allowed maybe even smaller stature athletes to be successful because of the way the game is played. The rules have kind of slightly changed. Um, and you know, speed and emphasis on speed and power in movement has been a, a much bigger shift rather than just strength. So game itself changed. And as a result of having more specialized, more trained athletes, we've recognized that sometimes they're often have, a greater chance of injury when they come in because they've just have more miles on their body. And that's not across the board. I think our, our coaching staff is really good about recruiting players that have played multiple sports. And I think they recognize the need for athletes. And and that's something that our coaches love about the way we train is it's, it's truly like about developing them as athletes and not just getting them to be the strongest people that they can be like strength is strength is important but never at the expense of movement. Like, and so we have a very movement based program where we use strength exercises and we use strength training to ultimately improve the athlete's ability and athletes improve their motor potential. And when we talk about that, it's really trying to get them to understand how to produce force, but also redirect force to be able to move their body in the most efficient manner possible through their environment. And so getting our athletes to understand how, how do I position my feet? How do I position my knees? How do I position my hips to maximize the amount of force that I can produce based on the exercise, maybe a squat or a split squat that we use. We're using them to understand how to develop that force and then using speed and using power, using, uh, we've got a great machine, the ohm to help our athletes to be able to understand how to apply that sport, sorry, how to apply that force so they can ultimately help them on the ice or in in their sport itself. So it's the game has changed. The game is faster. Um, I think the athletes that come in nowadays to truly understand that they want to get faster. It's not just about strength. Like it's one thing, like we met with a, uh, 
incoming freshman the other day, and he's. Uh, I said, "What are the big things you want to work on?" He's out. He's like, "I just want to get more explosive. I want to get more explosive. I want to get faster." Because he understands, like that's that's just the way we play. And speed kills. So we always talk yeah. about speed kills. Is we want to be able to play fast, mm-hmm. but we have to have the capacity to be able to do that repeatedly. Um, so mm-hmm. hockey is one of those fun ones. It's an interesting one. It's it, there's so many different physical qualities that are going to be needed, but. Uh, the way the yeah. game has changed, like the emphasis on speed and power are massively, massively important for us. The way we play, we've got to be, we, we prioritize our fitness at an extremely high level. Like, cause we, we get our athletes to understand, like we can't just be fast and explosive for the first 20 minutes of the game. We got to be able to do it in the last bit of the game. So our, our ability to repeat efforts is extremely, extremely important. I like it. Um, with that said, you know, what, what are some of the key considerations across all sports, starting with assessment? Obviously, you have to assess a number of different qualities to figure out where the, the biggest windows of adaptations are. Like, what do you guys look at when a, when a new hockey player arrives on campus like that? We um, the first thing that we do in an it's it's to go over an orientation like we talk, we call this our orientation. We go over policies, procedures, not necessarily the assessment but getting them to understand our culture, getting them to understand what my purpose is. And I tell them flat out, like my purpose is to try to help you become the best version of yourself and getting them to understand this is how I'm going to coach you. This is what our expectations are. Kind of all the stuff that we talk about culture. And I think that's extremely important to, to be upfront and lay the groundwork. Like this is, this is the way we're going to be. And this is our expectations. and, And this is what we're going to hold you to. Um, so that's first and foremost. And I think that is the most important thing to do. And then outside of that, we take some anthrop- anthropometric measurements, height, weight, wingspan, hand size. And our assessment has kind of shifted away. We used to do the FMS. Um, and then I started to realize like it, we weren't really, you know, we saw some things, but it didn't really show me anything that I wasn't going to be able to see when we started to move and we started to warm up, which we do every single day. So we shifted to this uh, the athletic ability assessment. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. It's by Ian McCown. And I don't know if there's another Ian McCown, but if it's Ian McCown who works for the Philadelphia Flyers, and I just texted him to find out, I'm like, are you the same guy that did this? Uh, (laughs) Ian, somebody I met this year. So I just texted him before we got on this call because I'm like, let me just make sure if you're the same guy. But um, it's the athletic ability assessment, and it's rated – um, similar to an FMS, it's a three, two, one, zero type scale. Mm-hmm. And, but it, everything is a little bit more loaded. So it's a barbell overhead squat, single leg squat off a box, uh, mm-hmm. a walking lunge, a plank, a side plank, um, a single leg hop and stick, a lateral bound push-ups, and then pull-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able to do that since, since the pandemic, we started to implement that into our, um, into our assessment protocol and just allowed our allowed me as a coach to be able to see how our athletes operated under load um, and yep. and operated under some not only just static and dynamic movements but some ballistic movements too um, so we were able to see mm-hmm. like where they would break down where some opportunities for improvement could be and then we put them into a program and then seeing some of those things from the assessment allowed me to be able to tell our maybe athletic training staff is like, Hey, maybe we can do some individualized work here, or you might need to be able to take a little bit more of a look here, maybe a further orthopedic exam um, or assessment that you might need to be able to do just to take this a little bit further, just because this is what I saw. And that's, what's nice about the relationship that we have is like, I can do this assessment and then they might need to do some table assessments to be able to, you know, peel back some more layers to try to find some things. But 
that's what we would do from, from an athletic development standpoint to try to assess them as best as we can. And then further, then we'll start to look into some performance type stuff, vertical jump, okay. counter movement, non-counter movement, or for the basketball athlete, um, approach vertical jump versus static vertical jump, yeah. uh, 10 yard sprint, uh, and a test of agility, um, some basic type of just athletic based, uh, athletic based movements to try to see not only the quantitative side of things, like what, what's their jump, what's their time, but how do they decelerate? How do they land? How do they, yeah. how do they stop? Um, can they eccentrically load? Like, you know, we've seen lots of different examples where we might have athletes with, uh, incredible engines, right? Like all gas, but no brakes at all. Their ability, to, yeah. their ability to slow down, their ability to decelerate is is very poor to the point where they're falling over they don't know how to control themselves but they're fast as they're you know yeah. I, I won't finish that sentence but like they're they're real fast <laughs> and they're real explosive um but they have no ability to control that so so we can tailor some individual work based on improving their stability improving their braking system improving mm-hmm. their eccentric strength getting them to understand how to control what it is that they have in an effort to try to keep them healthy but also try to improve their performance at the same time so um, it's not an elaborate table table assessment because I often don't have that that time. It's just I'll be upfront and honest. Yeah. Like it's it's hard to be able to look at everybody's internal external rotation. Um, yeah. uh, our training staff can do that, and then they can work on any mm-hmm. kind of further um, you know, kind of rehab programs that they might want to put them on. But from my standpoint, the athletic ability assessment, I, I don't think there's a lot written on it. But I think it's um, if anybody's mm-hmm. looking for somebody something different, I I, I, I take a look into it. That's great. I'll have to check it out. Um, you know, when you actually get to program design and coaching, you know, what elements do you think are are applicable a- across all sports? And the reason I ask is, and I, I think we've even talked about this in the past, is it's it's hard to learn how to write comprehensive programs, right? Like you and I came up when we were at the University of Connecticut, we got to witness, you know, six, seven, eight different coaches and yeah. you know, what they found is important. You went on to Holy Cross, I went to the private sector. We, we, had, a, we had exposures to people in person. Obviously, we had access online to a lot of different things, but it just takes a lot of exposures to get there. When you look at, you know, what are high quality programs, what advice would you give to young coaches who want to write good programs? What are the key elements that are like non-negotiable, whether you're talking about basketball, hockey, baseball, whatever? Oh, that's a great question. And I think the best answer is number one, if you want to learn how to write better programs, you've got to be able to expose yourself to many different styles and many different coaches um, because every facility that you work in, the programming is going to be different because in my, my opinion, the programming that you decide to do should be based on the facility that you're in. Like my training programs that I wrote at, at the university of Connecticut were different than the, the programs I wrote at Holy cross, which are slightly different than the ones I've written here because the amount of equipment that I have is going to be different. Like how uh, the, the flow of a training session that, that I want within the room is going to be a little bit different. So you've got to be able to understand the nuances of the environment that you're in and the equipment that you have access to. And that only comes with exposure and just sometimes that you may not have to intern places, but just go, go visit, right. Just go do a site tour, just go visit lots of different facilities, lots of different coaches in different environments, understand how they program, and understand what they're looking for, understanding what their goals are, um, how they might piece things together. But I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then when it comes to the elements that are going to be similar across the board, I've found that the things that are going to be the most important, especially in the setting that I work in, is work capacity, uh, their mobility and stability, and their work ethic. Like that, it's 
and it, it might not be strength and speed and power and all this type of thing, but the way I look at things, and I tell this to every incoming freshman into a recruit, if you like, if you want to be prepared when you come to school, be in great shape. That is the first and foremost thing, because if you could be the most skilled player in the world, but if you get tired 20 minutes into a practice, then when the coach is evaluating you, you're going to fall further down the depth chart. So number one, making sure that you're in great shape that so you can recover and you can perform your skills over and over and over again. Second thing is being mobile and stable. And I kind of lump those two together, but emphasize your mobility, emphasize going through a full range of motion as much as you can, be able to control the loads that you decide to use, be able to control your body, making sure that you can uh, you can get into positions of, of deceleration, making sure that you can get into positions where you can absorb force. Because you you know as well as I do what, what happens when you fatigue, right? When you fatigue, you, you don't want to flex anymore. You don't want to bend. You don't want to get low. You're going to start standing up. And when you start to do that, then you're going to lose your, your stability. You're going to lose your strength. You're going to lose your power. Uh, you're more likely to make mistakes. Um, so those are key things. And the third thing is nobody should outwork you. Be com- be hyper competitive. Work as hard as you can because whatever training program you decide to do, um, whatever emphasis you're going to have, whether you Olympic lift, whether you power lift, whether you use bodybuilding, whatever whatever kind of principles you espouse to, whatever you like personally as a coach, you got to make sure that whoever's doing it is going to work hard at it. So those are the similarities across the board in anything that I write is all right. Um, we're going to emphasize our, our work capacity. We're going to emphasize mobility and stability, and, and we're going to make sure that we that we coach to the programs where the athletes work hard and they just don't go through the motion so they can actually get results out of it. Yeah. Like that, those are probably the commonalities across the board. And yeah, we'll emphasize strength development, we'll structural balance, uh, different movement patterns, but it's the, those are the three things over 20 plus years doing this that I think have been the most impactful and most important um, to get results. That's awesome. Um, you know, what, what about, you know, we've talked about like what athletes need, but let's talk about what coaches need. You know, like I know you're, you're a, a super humble guy who's never, you know, been afraid to admit like, Hey, I was wrong about this. I'm doing this better now. What's been your biggest growth area over the past year? What, what have you changed that that's had a favorable impact on, on outcomes? I think the biggest thing that we've done is I think might've been four or five years ago, I took a, a real deep dive into fascia, right? And I've, and I've done that. I've given this presentation a couple of times. I think we, I think we did a virtual NSCA conference for, uh, for Maine, for the, for the Maine state thing. And I gave a presentation on, on fascia um, and it's available and I've given it multiple times and de- going into anatomy trains, number one was really important, but then also it took me down this rabbit hole of understanding um in looking into different ways to impact our fascia. And when I've started to understand what fascia is, what the purpose of it is, how can we impact it? Um, that's impacted how we cue and how we kind of teach some different exercises. Like that's going to be, I think that's been the biggest difference over the last three, four years. I know you asked for the past year, but it's, it's still making an impact and getting, um, getting me as a coach to understand how can I tweak this exercise to maybe impact our fascial development a little bit more, or how can we cue this exercise to create a little bit more traction through different fascial lines and slings to maximize the neural inputs that we're going to be able to get into back to our brain. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what, what I think has made the biggest difference. And honestly, I don't know if you talked about it before, I kind of briefly mentioned we've been, ac- we've been fortunate to have access to this, to this, 
uh, piece of equipment called an ohm, right? And an ohm is a it's called optimal human motion. And I've been fortunate to be able to know the inventor, and he lives in Connecticut, and he's a physicist by trade, right? And that's what he grew up as. He's a physicist, doesn't know exercise, but he wanted to create a machine that was very lifelike in how we actually move as human beings. And so it's an isokinetic accommodating resistance machine. So isokinetic meaning that we can keep the constant speed and it can go as slow as 0.1 miles an hour up to 10 miles an hour. And then when I say accommodating resistance, the resistance is going to change based on the amount of force that you apply into the ground. And I love the machine because it actually works on gait, right? We talked about before, like our program is very movement-based and we want to try to make sure that we can move in the most efficient manner possible. The machine allows us to work on our gait, not just in the sagittal plane, but in the frontal plane and the transverse plane. We can do a variety of different things on it. And what starts to happen is that when you start to apply force at a constant speed, you learn how to tension and create mobility and stability at every single segment through the kinetic chain that allows you to move much more freely through your environment. And so those are the biggest things we that we've really impacted and changed, like how I'll cue things with maybe an emphasis on reach so we can create a little bit more of a tensional um, and tractional type stimulus to our fascia and, um, you know, just maybe manipulating our environment through steps or through slant boards a little bit more to maximize our range of motion to create a little bit more tension, develop a little bit more strength to our slings. That That's probably the biggest thing that we've, we've developed in. And I, it's, that's a constant battle. It's like, how do you continue to get better? How do you continuously try to grow so you can deliver the best program that you, you deliver, um, to the athletes. And that's one thing, you know, our, our program may have not changed dramatically in the last three or four years, but how we do things has dramatically changed over the last three three to four years. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. That's probably the biggest thing. I like that. Um, and, and the fascia system has been just an absolute difference maker. I think, you know, to, to be fair, like the, the knowledge wasn't out there when we came up, you know no, what I mean? Like these, these conversations weren't happening. And, um, you know, I, I think I've talked about it on a recent podcast, but you know, Thomas Myers circa Oh nine yeah. said we knew about a quarter of what we needed to know about the fascial system. So a lot of this is very, um, kind of new stuff. There've been some good presentations of, about how they can actually visualize what's taking place with various soft tissue interventions, dry needling, cupping, things like that. So it is a, it's a very exciting time on the fascial side of things, but you know, I think is the most hard about having this dialogue is it's, these are slow changes, right? It's, yeah. it's not like the, the cool trick on Instagram that gets you 20 degrees of hip internal rotation yeah. that disappears 20 minutes later. It's, <laughs> you know, you got to be patient. You got to kind of trust that what you're doing is creating not just, you know, transient changes to, to range of motion, but more significantly like patterns that are going to stick from a motor learning standpoint, you know, six months. From and now. it's, you know, the other thing that's, that's challenging about it too, it's, it's really hard to measure, right? Like you, like anything yeah. that you do, it's any exercise you choose to do or choose to, to program is, is going to target your fascial system, right? It's not something that yeah. you can completely isolate. Oh, we're going to do a fascial day. Like, like, what is that? Like, what do you mean? Like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like you just got to truly understand that every exercise you choose is really going to try to impact your fascial system. And I think taking a deep dive in a PRI, taking a deep dive in the RPR and really just understanding how these different philosophies or different approaches are really just ways to impact fascia, right? That's yeah. all it really is. And, and, and just truly try to understand how you might need to inhibit certain areas of your body to facilitate proper change in another area. And all it is, it's, it's a way to create optimal position. That's all you're doing. And fascia is often a, a, an obstacle to position. 
And what is it that we want to do yeah. when we train? We want to try to create the most optimal position to maximize the result or the desired adaptation that we want to be able to get. So we got to be able to understand that we can manipulate and we can change and we can tweak different movements to create a desired response just by you know maybe elevating somebody's foot, maybe by putting somebody in plantar flexion, by elevating their heel, maybe by you know using a band to facilitate a little bit more of a reach. Like it's there's just so many different ways and tricks that Absolutely. I think have just created a different lens for me to look at human mm-hmm. movement. You know what I mean? And that's probably the yeah. biggest change that we've been able to make. I like that. So that's what's changed. What what do you anticipate changing? You're a progressive thinker. I know you always want to be better. What's what's rattling around your brain right now, keeping you up in the middle of the night and, and excites <laughs> you to learn more? <laughs> I th- honestly, you know, it is, I think it's how do I create, how do I continue to make an impact? Right. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing. And I think I've really tried to you know, wrap my mind and wrap my brain around is as I get older, it becomes more difficult to relate to 18 to 22 year old, right? Because we're not, a, it's, we're not on the same wavelength. We don't have the same interests. I don't do the same things they do. I mean, I've got two young kids, right? I'm a parent. Like they, there's just different things that I'm going to be able, that I'm doing than when I was 28 or 30 years old coaching, you know, college kids. I wasn't that far removed. Yeah. So how do I navigate in the, the strange world that we live in right now with the way technology is adapting, with the way, uh, social media is moving and with the way it, just everything in the world's changing. Like how, how do I continue to make an impact? So a lot yeah. of it is some self-reflection and developing leadership skills and understanding a little bit more emotional intelligence and looking at, you know, my, my vulnerability and sharing mo- what I'm not good at or sharing what my stories with, with our athletes to try to try to, to create an impact. But I think the biggest thing that I've really been able to, I'm working at it. It's, it's not a fine, it's not a final thing is trying to view the world through their eyes, you know, because mm-hmm. I can tell a story. I can sit, tell you, you know, how I may see things, but as an athlete, they're, they're never going to see things through my eyes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I need to be able to change my perspective to be able to understand what is it that they're going through? What is it that they're seeing? What is it that they're experiencing? to try to relate to them so I can be a little bit more empathetic as a coach to try to help create the biggest impact that I can with them. I like that. That's probably the, that's um, probably the biggest it, thing because it, it's, yeah. it's a different world, man. Like, like we, I was listening to a Gary V podcast this morning and he was talking about how, you know, he grew up without the internet and that's what we did too. Like we grew, yeah. our childhood was, yeah. we didn't have the internet until we were in high school. Right. We didn't have like, I remember putting in my first uh, email, my first day of college. (laughs) Yeah. Like I remember putting in like uh, a CD, right. You had to put it in the computer and that's in, you know, hooking up to AOL. Like that's how we hooked up the internet. Right. And so, you know, we had a childhood that was devoid of the internet. Mm -hmm. And so how do we best interact with young people who all they know is the internet? And yeah. always being connected and always being online. You, you yeah. got to be able to relate to them. You got to be able to understand what it is that they've experienced. Good, bad, and different. Like, you know, it, everybody can have their own opinion on on social media and or what age that they should be exposed to different things. It's, um, I, I don't know if there's a correct answer. Like there's some research out there, but. I mean, there, uh, yeah, the research would say as late as possible. As late know, as possible, right? Yeah. Because their brains aren't I, ready I, for I it. It's true. Yeah. So 
but there's but different it's a ways lot to navigate. There is, there's a lot to navigate. And I think if, as a coach, you know, what do you want to do as a coach? You want to have an impact, right? And when you want to have an impact, you've got to be able to, there's got to be a certain level of understanding. It can't just be your way, your way, your way. You've got to be able to understand like the way other people are thinking. Like, um, so I think that's the thing that I've been really trying to be able to understand the most. And the other part too is trying to impact as many people as I can outside of just the athletes I get to see on a day-to-day basis and um, trying to help, you know, just regular people, uh, athletes, weekend warriors as much as they can to try to help them become the best version of themselves, honestly. And, you know, doing that through different social media and, and web three initiatives and all these types of things, but really just trying to develop some marketing strategies, understand how marketing works, understand how social media works and, and just really try to understand how, how can I make the biggest impact that I can on other people, the pot best positive impact that I can to help yeah. them help somebody else. And maybe that person can help somebody else. And it's a uh, you know, real pie in the sky kind of initiative, but I really believe that if I can make a positive impact on, on lots of different people and they can make positive impacts on other people, then we can have a positive world to live in. And that's, that's what I want for my children, which is what I probably, uh, what I know you want for your children too. Yeah, no doubt about it, man. Um, so we always do a lightning round as we wrap these up. And I know you are a voracious reader. You all, you have been probably as long as I've known you. You were, you were the guy that was getting up at 5 a.m. before it was cool to get up at 5 a.m. Uh, Is it cool was, to get up was, at 5 a.m.? That was impactful for me. Um, I, you know, as long as you're doing it on your own volition and not just because a, a, a child is yelling at you to wake up. Um, oh, yeah, but if yeah. you could go back in time, if you could recommend one book to every young coach, what would it be? And this is said by everybody. Um, ah, shoot. One? God, good Lord. You can, you can name a couple if you want to. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't say one. I'll you give you two, right? <laughs> uh, no, nah, yeah. I'll keep it to two because um, one, it's, it's uh, one of my mentors, Mike Boyle. He, he's recommended it for years, and it's how to win friends and influence people. You know, I yeah. think that's probably one of the biggest things to understand how to relate, how to communicate. Like communication is a skill. Mm-hmm. Squatting is a skill. Yeah. Deadlifting is, squ- is a skill. Jumping is a skill. Throwing a baseball is a skill. Like they're all skills. Mm-hmm. Being able communication is a skill. And it's a skill yeah. that's, it's, it's a lost art in, in our day and age because people communicate through, through text and through broken text yeah. and through memes and through uh, so many different mediums that, isn't face-to-face contact all the time. So being able to understand and, and recognize body language, being able to understand tone, listening skills. So how to win friends and influence people, I think is a, is a must read for a lot of coaches. And the second thing is chop wood, carry water. And that's by Joshua Medcalf. I don't know if you ever, have you heard of it? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's written in a very John Gordon type style where it's written as a story, yeah. easy read. Um, but I think it allows athletes and allows coaches and just anybody in general to understand, to take pride in the process. I think we live in an instant gratification world where, where so much of what we expect should be instantaneous and the results that we want are instantaneous. The job that we want is in, instantaneous. We want to become rich right o- overnight. And like that doesn't happen. And so much of what it is that you want to accomplish is just simply by doing the basic things over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's this concept of just chop wood, carry water and embracing the process um, instead of just looking forward to the outcome all the time. So those are probably the two books. Uh, there's countless other ones too, but those two books um, 
are super important just to understand what it takes to be successful, right? And it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like if you can improve somebody's squat in 20 pounds, like that, honestly, that shit doesn't matter. It's so much yeah. of it's the relationships and the connections and getting people to understand that embracing the day-to-day grind is, is so much more valuable. I like that. What about going back in time to young Brajesh 20 years ago, which I guess would have been the University of Connecticut, maybe in that transitional yeah. time where you headed to Holy Cross, um, give or take. If you could give yourself some advice back then, what would it be? I've said this time and time again is, uh, is don't think you know it all. Like, as I think at that time in my development, I, I thought I knew it all. Like I threw, you know, you know, I was, I was in perform better. I think I was putting out products. I was on the internet writing articles, had a website, you know, I, I learned, I knew how to coach. I knew how to create an impact. And, um, I thought I knew it all. And it was, you know, going to Mike Boyle's functional strength coach one that really opened my eyes. I think that was in. 2004, 2005, 24, 25 years old. And I went up to Boston university where he did it. And he was talking about fascia back then. He was talking about, um, Shirley Sarman back then. He was talking about Sue McGill back then. And I'm like, man, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know what this (laughs) is. And here's Mike. And he was probably in his forties, maybe pushing fifties at that time. And he was constantly getting better and he was constantly trying to find ways to improve. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't know it all. So the advice I would give to myself back then is to have a growth mindset and keep, keep thinking that you don't know it all. I like that. Um, what about to the kids and the parents? We were actually just talking offline about how our, our kids are growing up playing sports. Some of the, some of the things you hear on the sidelines, you know, you see parents yelling at, and the 16 year old kids that are refereeing on a Saturday morning, all this stuff. But we do get a lot of kids and parents that listen to this podcast together. Heck, some of them might want their kid to go play baseball at Quinnipiac. Um, if you could give one bit of advice to the kids, what would it be? And, and also, what about advice for the parents? So I'll start with the advice to the kid. The advice to the kid is probably the same thing I kind of mentioned before. Um, it, when you when you're deciding to train, like and you're emphasizing your training, like make sure that you don't neglect other aspects of your program. Make sure that you're fit, right? Make sure that you have a high work capacity. Make sure that you're mobile and stable and make sure that you nobody outworks you, right? Having those three components developed into your training program and your practice habits, I think are going to be really important. But the other things that go along with it too is be humble, right? Be humble, be vulnerable, and be willing to learn from every single individual. You can learn how to do things. You can learn how not to do things. But I think that I've seen children develop and I've seen the way parents talk to kids and, and I've recognized certain qualities that, um, that just are going to hurt them as they get older. Like be nice like that. that, That's, that's probably a really big one. It's just be nice, be humble, recognize that there's constantly ways to get better and constant ways that you can improve like probably the same advice I gave myself. Don't think you know it all, right? And just don't think you know it all and be willing to be, be coached and be able to be taught by a lot of different individuals because you can learn a lot, right? There, there's so many different people that can help you throughout your stage of development. Like that's probably the biggest thing. And for the parents, don't try to coach. Like just (laughs) don't, honestly, like if you're, if you're a parent, be their parent. Like, don't try to be their coach at the same time, too, because sometimes two things you can be conflicting. Like, 
I learned this during, during the pandemic is how valuable teachers are. Yeah. Like I am not like trying to teach my kids, my <laughs> wife and I, like, I don't have any hair. They're just like, <laughs> just like you, like I would have ripped whatever hair I had out because my kids did not want me to be their teachers. Yeah. My kids wanted be, wanted us to be their parents. Yeah. And so I think there's a role for every single individual. So parents need to be supportive. Don't pressure them. Um, push them, push them to be, to become the best version of themselves, but be supportive, be their parent. Don't try to coach them. Let the coaches coach, regardless of whatever it is. If you think it's good coaching, bad coaching, if you think it's bad coaching, then, then maybe sign them up for a different team, but like, don't try to coach them because it's going to be too conflicting. And then all you're doing is you're going to confuse the, the, the kid, like let the coaches coach. You just be a parent, be supportive. Um, it's, that's probably the biggest thing is, is I've seen too many parents think that they owe everything and then the kids honestly get confused. So yeah. as a parent, if you listen to this podcast, just support, support, love your kids yeah. up, push them, encourage them to try different things and, and help them along their way. Like, remember, like we said earlier, you're training them, train them, train them yeah. to be individuals, train them to be independent, not dependent on you. Yeah. You know, you don't want to shelter them from failure. It's funny. As you were describing no. that one, I'm like, I saw a quote from, um, NBA Finals MVP said, if, if you want to be successful, you need to be bad. Then you need to be good. Then when you're good, you need to fail. Then when you fail, you're going to figure it out. There is no shortcuts. It's a journey. Like, yeah, super, it isn't. But we have so many parents that, that literally just um, they're not helicopter parents anymore. They're snow plow parents. They want to pave the way and make everything <laughs> easy for the uh, kid. Yeah. Yeah. So. I said this. I've said this to coaches, too. Like you can't you can't pave the, ca- the pave the path for the kid. You have to prepare the kid for the path. Right, so prepare yeah. them with with how you love them up and how you teach them, and the lessons you you instill with them on a daily basis. Like those are the important things. Like you're not going to be able to because you know my wife is a guidance counselor too, and we see it. Like I work with kids, like kids who have been sheltered and kids who have never been um, taught to fail. They struggle mm-hmm. when they get to college. They, as they get older, if they've never developed those coping skills, they're going to struggle. And they're not going to be as developed as they can. They're not going to be as prepared as they can because at some point, somebody's going to say no to them. At some point, they're not going to be the best at something. At some point in their life, they're going to uh, face rejection. At some point in their life, they're going to um, you know, face an injury or face some level of, of, of pain in their life that they need to be exposed to at an early age so they can become more resilient to that. That's the job of ch- kids are resilient. Like, it's okay. It's kids are like I said offline, like my son was cut from a team this year and, and, you know, it hurt him for like a week or so. He was confused and he got over it and he had a great, he had a great season with his new team. Like kids are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. So let them be kids, let them learn. I love it. Nice, man. Where where can folks find out more about you be where, where are you at uh, online these days? Uh, so primarily my website, coachbpatel.com, um, just a massive collection of everything that I've done from articles, blog posts, podcasts that I've done, uh, uh, opportunities for nutrition, coaching, um, digital programming, a store. Uh, that's probably the number one. And then links to socials are Twitter, Instagram. I'm not really not that active in this book, but, um, Twitter and Instagram primarily along with the website, probably the best ways to get in touch with me. 
that's awesome, man. Well, you know, I, I've I've spoken very public about it, but you you had a massive impact on my career that day when you invited me to come watch you coach at UConn, and it, it really paved the way for me spending spending my years in a in a gym as opposed to a lab. So I owe you a, a big debt of gratitude, um, not just for for taking the time today, but for that as well. So appreciate you, man. Um, keep fighting the good fight, and, and thanks for carving out some time for this. I appreciate you. Thanks, Eric. 